Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance from Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona, California. It's our goal to reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's teaching, remember you can learn more about Pastor Michael Lance, the church, how to donate, how to contact us, and the podcast when you visit walkintruth.com. Now, Here's Pastor Michael Lance in part one of his teaching in Revelation 11 called The Two Witnesses. I will say to you that Jerusalem's been anything but a city of peace over the centuries. It's been a hub of uh, a lot of controversy and difficulty and uh, trampling underfoot. In fact, uh, there there have been many uh, people groups over the years that have literally trampled Jerusalem underfoot. We can think of Babylon. We can think of Medo-Persia. We can think of the Romans. We can think of uh, different things that have happened over history. And so I want to read this psalm to you because I think it's appropriate for where we are. It's, it's a psalm of David. It's Psalm 122. And it's these words. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 3. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. And if you ever go there, you'll see it's very compact. To which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, in ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 11. When we went to Israel in 2006, Some of the folks that were on our bus, and there were about three different churches that went together from various Calvary chapels, actually. People were singing Psalm 122 as we were heading for Jerusalem. It was pretty neat uh, to experience that. And as we uh, got our first view of Jerusalem, we were kind of uh, standing on this little elevated platform looking down into the city. It was really incredible to think of all that the city represents. And uh, we, from this fellowship in March of next year, have over 50 people going to Israel, and we will spend several days in Jerusalem, and we will look at the old city of David, and we will look at many different things. And we do know that Jerusalem even has a future prophetic significance, and it is going to be in the middle of our account as we look at Revelation 11. We're going to look at an account called The Two Witnesses. When we open the book of Revelation, I told you, I introduced you about four different views on how to interpret Revelation. Some of you left that night uh, vowing never to return uh, to Living Truth Christian Fellowship. Some of you were brave enough to come back because your head was hurting because you heard about all these different views like preterism and idealism and, and futurism. And you're like, oh, there's too many isms, man. Well, I will tell you this, Revelation 11 brings up a lot of different viewpoints with all those isms. Is it idealistic? Is it really preteristic? Was it fulfilled in the past at the fall of Jerusalem? What do these two witnesses really represent? Are they Moses and Elijah? Are they Elijah and Enoch? 
Are they uh, a symbolic representation of the church from the crucifixion and resurrection until the second coming? These are all the views that you can uh, listen to and try to grapple with. I will tell you that uh, I take a very literal view of, of these verses, but I'll say to you that there is some symbolic things to consider, and there's also a lot of application and encouragement, I think, that we will uh, witness in terms of um, this text. I mentioned to you that the temple is mentioned in verse 1. Let's just take a peek. It says, There was given, a, given me a measuring rod, Revelation 11.1, 1, like a staff. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship in it. Now, the temple is the temple that we understand is in Jerusalem. And there was a Solomonic temple, a temple that was built by Solomon. It was David's heart to build the temple, but Solomon actually did the building project. And that was the famous temple, and that was the glory of Israel during that time when the, all the tribes had really come together under one king, under one leader. The nation had been in civil war before then and fractured not long after the reign of Solomon. But a temple is at the center here, and John is told to take something like a measuring rod, like a staff, and he is to rise and measure the temple. But we're never given dimensions of what he measures. And people ask, well, what's the significance of measuring the temple, and what temple is this? Is it the temple that existed at Jesus' time, the rebuilt temple called the Temple of Herod, is that the temple? Well, that all depends. Because if this book was written after 70 AD, there was no temple. Every stone, one stone upon another, was thrown to the ground in uh, direct proportion to Jesus' prophecy. Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. So if John wrote in AD 95, which most, most futurists believe, there was no temple to measure. The temple was raised to the ground. It was actually lit on fire by the Roman army and they started to get the gold in between the stones. So that is something that you have to wrestle, wrestle with. In chapter 10, we saw John, he was invited uh, by this one who comes down from heaven to eat that little scroll, remember? And it was said it would be sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And he did go ahead and eat it. And this parallels the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel does the same thing. And then he uh, gets to look at the temple and the corruption around the temple and then later in chapters 40 through 48 in Ezekiel, there is what's been known as the millennial temple. But there's a debate as to what temple that actually is as well. What temple is this? Is this, here's a question for those of us who lean towards a futurist view. Is this a future rebuilt temple in the actual city of Jerusalem? Well, up until 1967, that would have been unthinkable. That would have been impossible because the Jews were not even back in the land until 1948 and did not recapture control of Jerusalem until 1967. You could not have a temple rebuilt until at least 1967, whatever your view may be. So is there going to be a future temple built in Jerusalem? I think so. I think the Bible indicates that clearly. I think that temple is going to be at the center of a lot of controversy that occurs. 
If you want to just write down, write down for your notes, Daniel 9.27 says, And he, speaking of the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. We believe that's the last seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he, that is the prince who is to come from verse 26 of Daniel 9, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, some difficult language, but Daniel 12, 11 says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, the midpoint, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, 1,260 days is three and a half years based upon a 30-day month in the Jewish understanding of the days of the months. So whenever you see 1,260 days, we're simply talking about three and a half years. Just another way to say it. 42 months is another way to say it. And Daniel tells us that something's going to happen at the midpoint, and there will be a ceasing of the grain offering and the offerings that take place. Now, here's the question. Will there be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and will there be a reinstitution of the offering system of Israel? There are many Jews today, and I don't want to inflate the numbers, but there are some zealous numbers of Jews that definitely today want to see the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Scholars of old couldn't imagine this because Israel wasn't even in the land until 1948. So if you're writing in the early 1900s as a, let's say, a Bible commentator on Revelation, you're, you're like, well, how's this going to happen? But now it's very much a possibility. But there's a little caveat and here's what it is. The Jews, as a uh, peace gesture, gave control to the Temple Mount to the Arabs. So even though they controlled Jerusalem as a peace gesture, they gave control of the Temple Mount to the Arabs. They don't have control of the Temple Mount. So you go to Jerusalem, and you go to the western wall known as the Wailing Wall, and there, there's a lot of people, Jewish people, praying with their prayer books, and they bob, and they're asking God to do a work in their country. And up above, you can hear the Muslim prayers being prayed on megaphones, and that's because there are two Muslim shrines on what is known today as the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock, the one with a golden roof, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is behind the Dome of the Rock, that Al-Aqsa Mosque is considered more holy, and that doesn't get maybe as much attention, but it has a black roof on top of it. Jewish people, uh, those who are zealous to see the temple rebuilt, maybe just for um, Zionistic reasons, that is, love of country, and that the glory of the country might return with the rebuilding of the temple, they, they believe that it's their duty to get this temple rebuilt. I've mentioned to you that there's a book out called Temple by Bob Cornuke, and some of you have gotten a hold of the book, where Bob Cornuke, kind of a modern Indiana Jones, has done some research, archaeology in the area. He's making an argument that the Temple Mount is not up above where the two Muslim shrines exist, where you see them in pictures, but the Temple Mount is actually below the existing considered Temple Mount, in the old city of David, and that's where the temple belongs. If that is affirmed by Israeli leaders, then they can immediately rebuild the temple because they don't have to deal with Muslim shrines and all the tension 
that goes with that area. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Visit the Walk in Truth store today and get the DVD series in Revelation by Michael Lance. The book of Revelation reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ. This book will give you a unique glimpse into heaven and the worship that happens there. It also reveals the future. We see the seven-sealed scroll, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the mark of the beast, and learn about the new heaven and the new earth. Join Michael Lance in these DVD series of the dramatic, often sobering book. Visit the Walk in Truth store today to order your copy of the DVDs, all available to help you dive deeper into the book of Revelation. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com. Make sure you subscribe to the Walk in Truth podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Then they can immediately rebuild the temple because they don't have to deal with Muslim shrines and all the tension that goes with that area. Bob Cornuke in his book just simply argues that he believes that area up above that's considered the... um, Temple Mount is too small and was probably simply a Roman fort overlooking the Temple Mount area. And uh, he believes this based upon some really good evidence. One of the compelling reasons is the Roman forts were all roughly the same size. And what they had up there is what's called the Fortress of Antonia. And they would have legions of Roman troops in Israel, especially at the feast times, to make sure there was peace and no uprisings against Rome. Well, if you take a corner of the existing quote-unquote Temple Mount, there is no way you could fit very many Roman troops up there. There'd be room for a handful of troops. What they typically had was whole bunker houses of places where Roman troops would stay, and that's why Bob Cornuke believes the whole existing quote-unquote Temple Mount was actually an area for a Roman fort to overlook the temple area which was down below. And even there's, uh, I think, references in Josephus to a stairway that led from the fort, the fortress, down to the Temple Mount. Very interesting, very compelling, very intriguing. Why? Because this could mean that if they receive this as fact, they could start a building project on a temple in weeks. And so something to keep your eye on. The other reason we believe that there's going to be a temple is because Jesus said these words in Matthew 24, 15. Just write it down for your notes. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand. And so then he tells people to get out. That's Matthew 24, 15. And then we've all already looked at this, but this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. It says, this, this one, the son of destruction, I'm just reading verse 4, opposes and exalts himself above every, every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So we have multiple scriptures that indicate an end-time scenario with a temple and some sort of attempt by this Antichrist figure to go in there and cause an abominable thing to occur, and thus bring on desolation. So we've looked at some of that already. That's a little bit of recap. But when John is told uh, to take something like a measuring rod or like a staff, uh, someone said, rise and measure the temple. It may be the one who shows up in Revelation 10, who uh, he gets the scroll from. 
and the altar and those who worship in it. He's told to measure this uh, worship area, if you will. What's the purpose of measuring the area? There's no dimensions given. So some see symbolic significance in this, they say. The act of measuring the temple circumscribes an area that uniquely belongs to God. Another writer says, to measure something means to claim it for yourself. In essence, God is saying, I own this city, I own this temple, and these are my people. Some believe by measuring, he's taking stock of them. Preterists, those who believe this was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, or take a partial preterist position, which simply means they believe at least part of the book was fulfilled in the past. That's what preterism is, past. They, they believe that the uh, temple is a symbol of the church. They believe the temple is a symbol of the people of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, We are the temple of God, whose temple you are. So there are those who would look at this passage and say, this is simply symbolic for the people of God, God's ownership of them. They belong to me, would be the message. And I don't think that you have to take one view exclusively. I think it could mean that on a secondary level. But... Notice some detail. There's a measuring of the temple of God. Naos is the Greek word, which specifically could refer just to the holy place and holy of holies, not the full compound, if you will. The altar is measured and those who worship in it. It seems to separate the worshipers from the structure. So even though there are those, and I, and I think there's some good scholars that see this symbolically. I'd say to you, there's some detail in here that makes me question if this is just about the people of God or the church. He's told, leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. If you have an NIV, New King James, it says it's been given to the Gentiles. Uh, that's non-Jews. And they, that is the Gentiles or the nations, will tread underfoot the holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. For how long? For 42 months. How long's that? Three and a half years. So you guys, if you've studied any prophecy, you've heard a lot about the 70th week of Daniel, the, seven, the 70th seven, the last seven years in Daniel 9.27. And three and a half is half of seven. Seven's that number of completion or perfection. We keep hearing this. We keep hearing of an abomination of desolation at the midpoint, stopping the sacrifice and offering at the midpoint. I believe this is what signals and sparks the great tribulation when the Antichrist defiles the temple and all kinds of things happen from God and uh, I believe uh, his people as well. So they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. But there are others, and I, and I do want to present to you other views, who say that these, these 42 months are not literal, they are symbolic. You might say symbolic of what? Well, it gets a little loose here because it, I guess it depends on the interpreter. But they say it's, it's symbolic from the death and resurrection of Jesus until all these things are fulfilled the Gentiles will trample underfoot the holy city until Jesus returns again. And 42 months is a symbolic number. And the church will be 
you know, numbered by God, we'll see in a moment, protected by God, used by God until the quote unquote 42 months is over. And until that time is over, the the people of God will be trampled. Or maybe you could even say the holy city. And we do know this, that from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, this went on a lot. There were a lot of wars in the area of Israel and Jerusalem, the Turkish uh, uh Uh, government and and armies. You can think of the Crusades where Jerusalem was right at the center, the Holy Land. People were battling for Mother Jerusalem and all of that. This is all history. There was a lot of war, a lot of tension. Sometimes uh, on these locations, a church would be built and then it would become a mosque depending on who was in control. And this is how things went. You've been listening to Pastor Michael Lance on Walk in Truth. This has been part one of his teaching in Revelation chapter 11 about the two witnesses. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. But first, remember, you can listen to today's teaching again and previous teachings in the book of Revelation when you visit our website, walkintruth.com. Walk in Truth is also available for free on many podcast apps, apps like iHeartRadio, iPodcast, Spotify, Google Music, and many more. Search Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app and be sure to subscribe. Walk in Truth is a ministry supported by faithful listeners like you. A monthly pledge of at least $5 goes a long way to make sure we can pay for everything that goes into producing this program. We appreciate everyone that supports Walk in Truth, and we hope you become a $5 partner too. To give online, visit walkintruth.com. To give by mail, Make your donation out to Walk in Truth. Our mailing address is Walk in Truth, P.O. Box 2063, Corona, California, 92878. That's Walk in Truth, P.O. Box 2063, Corona, California, 92878. And thank you for your partnership in this mission to reach out with God's Word. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Hey, I'm Pastor Michael Lance, and this study in Revelation chapter 8 about the famous seventh seal definitely has some scary stuff in it. But you know, the book of Revelation is a revelation about Jesus Christ and a revelation about what is coming to this world. And it's good motivation both to preach the gospel, and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, man, get saved, because you don't want to face the wrath of God. And one thing that you and I need to remind ourselves of or maybe understand for the first time, is that at the cross, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for you. That's why there were cataclysmic signs of judgment when he was dying on the cross. Remember, the sky grew dark at noontime. Remember, there was a radical earthquake, which speaks of divine visitation. God was visiting his judgment on his son instead of you. And if you're in the son, if you're in Christ, judgment does not belong to you because it was paid for in full at the cross. Let me just plead with you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, make him your Savior today. Ask him to save you, because Jesus does save from the wrath to come. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey friend, you're invited to our Wednesday night service as we continue to work our way through the book of Job the problem of evil, and the power of the gospel. You know, many times when you hear the book of Job taught, you hear the first couple of chapters, and then it's a fast forward to the end of the book to hear the end of the story, which is great. But the content in between 
is Job and his friends, or so-called comforters, wrestling with the problem of evil, asking deep questions, and Job's friends missing the mark on really every occasion, and Job asking some deep questions about God and how God works. And this is the content that we've been going through on Wednesday nights. So if you'd like to know more, you'd like to get into a good, deep study on the book of Job, you're invited to come on out Wednesday nights at Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. We begin at 7 p.m. You can get information and directions when you download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app in your app store. Look for that red logo with the pillars. You'll get all the information you need. In fact, you can listen to some of the past teaching and get up to speed on the book of Job and much, much more. So we invite you out, Living Truth in the City of Corona, where I serve as senior pastor, 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights, 1009 Arsenal Way, right off the 91 in Corona. Download that Living Truth Christian Fellowship app in your app store today and come on out and worship with us. Be sure to come back tomorrow to hear part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in Revelation 11 about the two witnesses. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona, California. In addition to our faithful listeners and financial partners, this program is made possible by our staff, Executive Administrator Pastor Mike Rizzi, Audio and Video Technician Nathan Lance, Program Director Rob Newton, Graphic Arts Director Brenda Lance, Walk in Truth Store Admin Larry Bondi, Financial Admin Claudia Rizzi, and Senior Pastor Michael Lance. I'm Mike Massaro. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. It's our goal to reach out with God's truth to all people.